0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode number one of the Own It Academy podcast. My name is David Francis, an MSc student in strength conditioning, lecturer in sports science and strength conditioning, and currently work as a strength conditioning coach in rugby. The aim of this podcast is to get as much value and informative content out to you guys in the fitness industry as we possibly can. Today's show is all about starting a career as a strength conditioning coach and I chat with Kia Wenham Flat who is one of the biggest names in the UK strength conditioning scene having worked with multiple elite teams across various continents. We discuss Kia's switch from rugby to college American football, talk about Kia's career including his internships and the lessons he's learned, cover the future of strength conditioning in the UK, and we also get into business and networking for coaches. Finally we dive into upcoming trends that Kiri is working on including optical occlusion and velocity-based training. I really hope you all enjoy the show and get some great value from it. This is my first ever podcast so please bear with me if there is any mistakes or any teething issues and as you can possibly hear I was struggling with my voice the whole way through so if that does sound a little croaky apologies for that also. Alright without any further ado let's get into today's show. Okay, so very excited to welcome on the show today, Kia Wenham Flat. Kia is the director of athletic performance and coordinator of football performance at William and Mary University. Is it university? College of William and Mary, second oldest university in America. <laughs> okay, my apologies. So, College of William and Mary, Kia. Thanks so much for coming on the show. What's been going on in twenty nineteen for you?
1: It has been the busiest, hardest year of my life. Like I am. You know, I, I we had a baby at the end of uh, uh, November, so that coincided a week after I got promoted to this job. Uh, you know, new, new, relatively new job, one well, new position, new college, new baby, sixty, seventy hours a week plus on top. So, like, like I was telling you, your fairy, you know, I'm I'm busy, but it's uh, it's much better than the alternative.
0: I've done the alternative, and I would pick this every time. Well, they say being happy in your career is uh, number one, right?
1: So they tell me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, Keir. So um, you've recently made the transition from rugby to American football after, what, 10 years in rugby?
1: No, it was about coming up to eight. I, I started uh, July 2010 at Wasps, and I started at Richmond in January of last year. So I've been, I've been in the States about
0: a year. How have you found making that switch, and has it presented you with any new challenges?
1: Um... I mean, the, the challenge is uh, fairly consistent. If, in some jobs, where you go between sports or you go between uh, between teams, which is there are there are cultural hurdles to be overcome. There are there are people that you have to build a relationship with and have difficult conversations with in both directions. Um, which I think you know there there are certain. Challenges inherent to the NCAA system, which don't exist in in any in any other environment. Which is, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it depends. Like, so, I mean, in some schools, they're basically professional athletes, and they will just cheat the system inside out to make sure that they they behave as professional athletes. And then the academics, like you know, you have like grown three hundred pound men going through human movement classes to tick off a, a credit, that kind of yeah. thing. But I mean. William & Mary is like, quote-unquote, the public Ivy League. Like, it's extremely academic. So, at the end of the day, our guys are students first, athletes second, which means, you know, office hours are dedicated to education. So, we're having to get guys in, you know, very early in the morning, late in the evening. You had you know the, the challenges of scheduling get everyone in then you have your NCAA um, regulations which state that you have periods of eight hours and periods of 20 hours now because coaches want to get every single hour they can out of their athletes what you have is a situation where you go from eight hours to 20 in one week which as you know if you double the volume of anything almost regardless of intensity you're asking for trouble
0: yeah absolutely
1: and it's because you impose the limit on coaches they think that's what they should do rather than just sure that they shouldn't do it you know so it's, it's a unique set of challenges, but it's also, you know, what I think is, is it's an environment that's pretty ripe for, for opportunity. What we are trying to do right now uh, is not being done at a lot of schools and it creates a lot of headaches, but if we can make it work, you know, we're, a, a, we're an unfair advantage against the teams that we're going against.
0: What would you say is the number one change that you've made at William & Mary that you believe is differentiating and revolutionising the approach that you have there?
1: Global management. Global management, you know, I'd say the vast majority of college teams or, or institutions, you know, one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. So if you accept the fact that all forms of physical activity impose a physical cost on the body, which taps into a finite stress tolerance capacity of the athlete, yeah. and you want to do as much as you can, as hard as you, as you can, as often as you can, and keep them on the field, You have to account for every single thing the athlete is doing. And there are going to be times where pushing in one area requires you to pull back in another area. And you have to be able to understand the impact that the the, the physical preparation coach has on the the tactical, technical and so on. Because what you excel at physically or what you're weak at physically will inform the tactics that the team should undertake. And it's going to open up a wider variety of, of technical skills to you. So, you know, if you don't have a, a certain amount of basic physical qualities, that's going to narrow your, your movement toolbox, which is going to narrow your tactical schemes and so on. And then uh, obviously ac- across all areas of the program, you're, you're, you're having an influence on psychological preparation. So actually being able to precisely define what are the, the psychological traits of elite performance and how are you going to work together as a department to put athletes in environments which develop those characteristics yeah that's something that i would say almost no professional sports organizations do let alone colleges so it's what we're undertaking is fairly ambitious and we're by no means um close to realizing the vision but every every day we move in the right direction i think we're we're trying to distinguish ourselves against our competition
0: how much similarity have you found between working with the academy teams in the uk that you have and now we're working in the collegiate system in the States. Um,
1: it is it is similar in that you're trying to get people that are not used to be being told what to do to try and cooperate with you. Um, it's similar in that there's a large degree of talent identification that goes on. Uh, I would say what is dissimilar is that there's a lot more selling of the program that has to be done in America. Um, you know... Thinking back to my time at Wasps, it's like you never had to sell the program to a kid. It's like they were desperate to be a professional rugby player, and you, they were uh, grateful to get any opportunity that was offered to them pretty much. Whereas it's like even at the most basic level, you're having to sell your program to uh, to to your recruits. And we actually had a pretty good recruiting season this year based on the the vision that we laid out to the parents, to to the athletes, and that kind of stuff, and and uh, opening the kimono. <laughs>
0: So that's interesting and I guess really highlights the difference in exposure in S&C um, here and in the States. And whilst we have some really great coaches in the UK and the facilities mm-hmm. are getting better for youth and academy players, why does that golf still exist? That's
1: money in competition. Just because I, I think, unfortunately, what people are realising uh, the hard way is that Guys trying to model the big performance facilities like the Mike Boyles, the Juggernauts, the Exoices in the UK are doomed to fail. Uh, and even in the US, those facilities struggle to keep the lights on because of the seasonal nature of the sports. Because it's it's really, really difficult, you know, what you're going to do the rest of the year. So... If you think about all the money involved in American sports and the fact that a first-year uh, draft prospect in the NFL is going to be making minimum half a million a year, that would make you the highest-paid player at a professional rugby club.
0: Crazy money. So yeah. you
1: think about all the money that's swimming around in those sports and you can, you can get 30 guys through in the draft and they barely keep the lights on. And then you think about the money that's not involved in, in UK sport and the fact that they're being snapped up by clubs by the, by the time they're 12 and they're already getting it for free. Yeah, it's. I think it, the model doesn't really work. <laughs> so, and if you look at the uh, the competition, let's say five percent of high school football players end up at the Division One college level. There's a, you know there's hundreds upon thousands of uh, high school football players competing for very very few places. So there's there's a lot of competition. On, on both sides of the coin, you know, there's competition amongst the colleges to to have a limited number of players and there's competition amongst the, um, the, the players to get into a limited number of uh, high school, uh, sorry, into a limited number of college programs, which again,
0: cranks up the competition and, and cranks up the price. How involved is the strength conditioning department with the recruitment of the athletes? So do they get to come in and see the uh, the SNC environment beforehand? And do you think this has any influence on their decision?
1: Absolutely. like I mean, this year, all the recruits that came in would have a full uh, tour of the facilities, uh, tour of the school. And we would, we would sit down, you know, anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour with the, the players and with the, with, with, with the parents as well and outline exactly what it is. Our, our high performance model is and what we feel distinguishes us from other schools and what are we going to do for your kid. Um, what are we going to do for their career? And um, here's how we're going to do it. That's, that's what we did. And uh, it, was, it, it went
0: pretty well. Awesome. Uh, so I want to talk a bit more about what training methods you're using at the college a little bit later on. But here I just want to talk about your SNC journey and give the listeners some information about your SNC career path. And you've been quite vocal on your blogs and podcasts before about the Rocky Road of becoming a pro SNC coach. Uh, and I really love the way that you talk about it openly and honestly. So starting off then, what or when was the first time that you decided SNC was gonna be your career path? When I realised I was such a bad
1: athlete, I was never gonna make it to pro.
0: <laughs> Basically. So it all
1: started playing rugby? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to be a pro rugby player and then you know, by the age of fifteen, sixteen, you just the writing's were, well. The writing was on the wall for me. I mean, there are there are people out there that are uh, don't have the self awareness to, to figure it out early doors and and maybe keep persisting longer than they should. But I I realised fairly
0: early on that I was not not built for it. <laughs> yeah. So, was you able to get any experience with programming at that time? No, uh, I mean
1: I this was around the age of 15 16 so i just i, I started training myself then and uh, ended up doing pe at gcse a level but to to help me with that it wasn't you know i'm going to pursue a career in this necessarily but around that you know finishing a levels um yeah i decided you yeah, know I'm, I'm i'm probably not going to be a professional rugby player so but you know i immediately uh, picked psychology which was a terrible idea mm. and i dropped And uh, the second time I tried it, I did sports science at Leeds, and you know I've since then I've I've either been trying to be uh, a professional strength and conditioning coach or being one, and um, yeah,
0: bumpy old road. Okay, so you have done your first degree at Leeds, and your S and C masters was at Bolton, right? Mm -hmm, Mhm. Yeah. Okay, so we know that if you want to work in pro sports as an SNC coach, uh, you need to have a degree and SCA or CSCS accreditation. But how important is the institute that you study at?
1: Meaningless, but like it is a meaningless piece of paper.
0: <laughs> but it's a necessary piece of paper. Yes, I mean, as an example, now you know most strength conditioning jobs in the first couple of lines will state. Degree educated and UK SEA accredited, right? Because
1: they can. Because they can. It's not any indicator of coaching quality. It's just there there's a liability aspect that the institutions wanna wanna cover their ass. Um, you know, it's you you have to have some kind of qualification. But if you go back and look through all of the kids that get killed by American colleges, it's always by like a master strength coach or someone who's been a credit 10 years or blah, 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 blah. This yeah. is absolutely no indicator of quality. Um, So it is what it is like. I would just advise people, if if you do want to do this, is is to get it out of the way, get the pieces of paper and then concentrate on the stuff that matters. <laughs> because the the size of the disconnect between what is required to be known and the skills that are required to excel as a, as a strength condition coach or a high performance manager and what you are taught um, at university level, are there's a huge disconnect. And coaches hopefully find that out the hard way and they, they try and correct it or they, they don't realize it and they're doing themselves and the, their athletes a disservice, I think. So it's, it's, it's tough to do. I think there perhaps needs to be... Uh, a change to the educational system or, or better communication between uh, professional teams, uh, accrediting bodies, and, and institutions because, you know, I pick them all the time. but actually, I won't say the name, but there's, there's a, a prominent strength and conditioning university in southwest London that pump out year after year of strength and conditioning coaches that believe that the Olympic lifts cure cancer, yet they can't coach their way through a speed session or actually define, you know, KPIs for a position or a game and we need to do a better job of speaking to places like that and saying actually what you're producing we have no use for and the UK SCA needs to do a better job uh, communicating with um, professional teams and not uh, just accrediting coaches on a completely arbitrary basis of whether they can do a broomstick snatch with a stooge that knows exactly what they have to do and like, oh, I'm going to do a fake error and then you're going to correct me. That is not coaching. Coaching is how do you take what's in your head and put it in somebody else's head and get them to do what you want to do and how do you manage that day by day, week by week, month by month to achieve an outcome of of multiple different fitness qualities in the right amount at the right time when it counts. So that's why I think it it should be be like 90% case study. And it's like 10% case study. So it's, it's, it's completely, in my opinion, wrong. I'm sure they're welcome, they're
0: welcome to disagree. Cool. So definitely some thought-provoking views there. So for you, Keo, what does good look like? And how do we help new S&C coaches come out of education with the practical skills to start contributing on programs pretty much straight away? Well,
1: I think if you look at... If we, if we look at the examples of, say, medicine or dentistry or aviation... If you go to a degree program for those vocations, you come out of a dentistry program being ready, willing, and able to work in a dentist's office. Yeah. Or if you're a medical student, obviously with supervision, you are able to work on a hospital and treat patients. If you're an aviation student, you're allowed to fly a plane. I would be a lunatic to put a recent graduate of sports science in, in a high-level professional club to work as my number one and number two assistant. <laughs> so... <laughs> we there's a gap there that has to be made up and i would say maybe we can learn more from uh, those fields which is it's it's almost like a 50-50 education and apprenticeship model from day one right i personally did not stand in front of a team of athletes until i was 23 24 long since graduated now something's wrong there if 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 i say i want to train athletes i should be put in front of athletes from day one initially with massive supervision and then with progressively less, 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 less being challenged with com- progressively more complex tasks so that when I graduate and I get my accreditation, get my degree, I can, I can slot myself into a working environment and be productive and not have to do a year-long internship of doing piss tests and, and putting the pads away to earn the right to learn. <laughs> yeah.
0: And that actually leads us quite nicely into internships, which I guess are almost accepted as the fourth or fifth year of the actual degree. How much value do you see currently in internships? It depends on the it depends on the club. Some, some teams just
1: it's free labor, and the interns get nothing out of it and they leave dismayed and um, you know the reputation will probably uh, get around that that club doesn't treat their interns very well, and then other, other interns uh, have a fairly good experience in their internship I was pretty lucky with mine you know I've always said that Ian Taplin was uh, extremely gracious to me and, and very helpful and, and gave me a lot of freedom and I've tried to do that with my interns and uh, you know, I think about you know the last few interns I've had you know one of them's working for the Houston Astros one of them just interviewed with the New York Giants uh, yeah one of them who's assisted me is in charge of Argentina Sevens now if, if you look at Certain groups of, of coaches. I was thinking about this the other day. If you look at that London Wasps group of coaches, when Dan Howes was in charge Dan Howes, head of the Houston Astros, Nick Chad, head of Academy Man City, uh, Tom Farrow, head of England Sevens, me, I've done what I've done. Sam Portland, decent career in
0: professional rugby, Ryan Hicks, Malaysian <laughs> Olympic Institute, like success leaps clues. So it won't come as a surprise to uh, most strength conditioning coaches nowadays that your internship is not going to be very glamorous. It's mm-hmm. a kind of crappy job with little to no pay for a whole year. Yeah. How do you go about ensuring that you can pay your bills? So Kia, I remember you working as a personal trainer back at Dangate Gym. Rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, pumping out client after client alongside your internship. And I believe that wasn't even your only job. How did you pay the bills? How did you stay afloat at that time? I didn't. I lost money.
1: I had to take five grand off my parents.
0: Oh wow! So,
1: yeah, that's that's. I was one of the lucky ones, and um, that was still with you know two or three part-time jobs on top. You know, I was I was training people for, you know, one of those like training groups where you just like run around in the park and get shouted at. I was one of those guys. <laughs> yeah. um, I was doing online programming. I was doing personal training clients. Um, and i was and i was doing the internship on top so I, I still lost money so that's that's one of the challenges and you know the problem is is just people people talk about the whether it's uh unfair and cruel and all that kind of stuff but it's just a fact of economics is when you have an oversupply relative to demand intense competition in, in the marketplace is going to push down wages like your your phone costs you know, a fraction of what it would have cost ten years ago because of that competition. same with you know airline flights and all that kind of stuff. it's it's competition that, that makes the world go around. and it, it's good from the perspective of clubs and you know teams and institutions and all that kind of stuff because the product they're consuming is cheaper and it's of a a higher quality because of that competition. Now, unfortunately, there's human beings involved that they've competed away the profit. So I think what's going to happen is the supply is going to go down and people are going to get sick of it and and things will get more in a balance uh, or strength and conditioning is going to have to unionize and um, clubs are going to have to pay more or, or be shunned via organizations that, that advocate on behalf of the coaches. And I think picking on them again, the UK SCA could have done that a while ago and they've, they've chosen not to. So they they speak out of one side of their mouth about um, fairness for coaches and you know wages and looking after interns. And yet they don't um, advocate for their coaches and they'll post up adverts of high-level institutions asking for full-time workers for free, which is... You know, you can't have it both ways. And that's where the ASCA and Dan Baker have distinguished themselves because they will not do that. And they have, they have set up um, government accreditation. You know, if you, want to, if you want to have a strength condition coach, they must have this level accreditation. They must be paid this much or we can't do business with you.
0: Yeah, so I actually really enjoyed that summary, uh, and it's definitely thought provoking. it's interesting you mentioned Dan Baker and ASCA. Yeah. Uh, he was actually our summer onsite last year, and he was talking a lot about his opinions on what needs to change in the industry. You know, and it's definitely something that I think the the UK could do a lot, lot better, and something I'd like to see in future. It's
1: it's tough. It's tough because basically you're gonna get you're gonna get some people that go with the union, some people that don't, and you know short of people being on the picket line calling other coaches
0: scum <laughs> yeah
1: I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how it's going to work
0: okay so just before we move on past your internship for anyone uh, about to start or thinking about starting an internship there's a great post on the rugby strength coach blog the 10 commandments of the internship by fernando levy currently currently head of
1: sevens for Argentina. all
0: right so yeah all the more reason to check it out uh, it's a really good summary of mm-hmm. uh, internships uh, yeah. So, you've done your internship. How did you get your foot in the door as an employed coach?
1: Um, you know, I think it just comes down to like this is where having the side business has been useful because it, it teaches you, you know, it teaches you what sells. So, people buy things that have a high perceived value, that have, you know, they, they buy products that people say good things about, they buy from people that they know, like, and trust. And they buy things that are scarce. So what are you going to bring to the table that is valuable and scarce to, to, the, to the club that solves problems? Are you going to get people to say good things about you? Are you do people know you? Do they, know, do they like you and trust you? All that kind of stuff. And, you know, that, that first year of my internship, I tried to approach it mentally of what are the problems that I can solve? You know, can I be can I be there longer than the other guy? Um, am I building relationships? Do people know who I am? Or am I being useful? All that kind of stuff, um, and just just more of the same. It's it's it, the, the principles don't change, but obviously your your skill set and your value to the organisation does change. I think I've listened to the Tim Ferriss podcast, and somebody said career development is just getting the opportunity to deal with bigger and bigger problems. <laughs> Love that. So I get to deal with the problems now that would have made my head spin when I'm an intern. And they, you know they still make my head spin a little bit now, but like, that's that's the the principles are the same. I'm still trying to build relationships with coaches. I'm still asking, you know, how can I make your life easier? How can I how can I help you to do your job better? Still trying to build relationships with with my athletes and and make sure that what I'm bringing to the table is is scarce and that the college want to hold on to me. I leave that they go with their blessing, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think this sets us up quite nicely for the next section. So I wanted to discuss the fact that S&C nowadays seems to be more of an entrepreneurship. So you're selling a personal brand to employers and to clubs. Is that the way you see it at the moment? Oh, yeah, unquestionably. Like, if, when you talk about what is scarce, the
1: world <laughs> and their uncle has a degree in strength conditioning and UKSCA accreditation. Like people, say, people say to me, am like, oh, I've just got my degree. I've got my accreditation. I'm like, yeah, big deal. So is everyone else. What are you, you going to do that's different? And it can be that you have a level of experience and a level of track record or a degree of sophistication to your work that doesn't exist at that level, which I, 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 I believe is part of the reason that I'm in the position I'm in now. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, I rose relatively quickly here and obviously relationships were part of that and, and kind of feeding into that what is scarce is relationships you know all things being equal, people want to work with their friends all things not being equal they still want to work with their friends so when, when you talk about things which are different the, the qualifications the accreditation is the last thing that's different the very last so you, you have to concentrate more on the other stuff and you have to be understanding that at all times in strength and condition, you are selling yourself or you're, you're selling something, either your ideas or your, your value or you know, yourself to an organization. So you, it's better to be a 10 out of 10 persuader and a 5 out of 10 coach than a 10 out of 10 coach and a 5 out of 10 persuader. I love that. Just in, in terms of pure longevity, for sure.
0: Okay. So I didn't want to ask you what books to read as there's a full post about books on your site, but I do want to quickly talk about Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I think is mandatory for S&C coaches to read. Do you agree with that? No question. And I feel that the philosophies in the book are both important for networking purposes and relationship building with employers. Have you had success implementing ideas from the book?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I spoke to Rob about it. Like... What I would change from how I was younger, when I was younger, sorry, is is to concentrate more on depth, not breadth. Like, if a thousand people know you a little bit, that's not going to help your career. But if ten people know you inside out, and they would, you know, they would uh, hand you their kids for a weekend, you're doing. Yeah. So it's. uh, I think. Not to be underhand, but I think people need to be a lot more strategic about the way that they network and who they associate themselves with, which can be difficult to do when you are starving and you want to get a career in strength conditioning.
0: Yeah, and and that's when it's so easy to make the wrong decision as well, right? Yeah. Like I, I
1: you know, I was talking to a former intern of mine about a job and um, he mentioned the team and I was like, well, I, I won't name the team, but they've gone through their fifth strength conditioning coach in five years. And I was like, I was like, that's the last team you want to intend for. And he's like, no, it's not. I just want a job. And I was like, I can respect that, but maybe it's not going to work out for
0: the best. So just how important is networking and the ability to network for strength conditioning coaches? Massive.
1: Have you ever bought a product that you didn't know exist?
0: I have not. What's the first thing you do when you go on Amazon? Uh, well, in terms of probably what influences my decision, it would probably be the reviews. Exactly. What's that? <laughs> Networking is Amazon reviews for people. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay So, uh, as a brand new strength conditioning coach, and we spoke about before the importance of having good reviews, how do you get in front of those people? How do you get in front of good strength conditioning coaches to talk about what you're doing um, and build that network?
1: Well, if you go on safari and you want to see some animals, what do you do? drive the Jeep over to where they're hanging out. So you can go to conferences, you can go to workshops. You can go to social groups. You can do the equivalent online LinkedIn discussion groups. You can contact people via social media. You can uh, increase awareness of what you're doing just by sharing your work online. Uh, William Wayland, I've actually yet to meet William Wayland in the flesh, but he and I have been conversing online for quite a while now. And his big thing is like, I'm tired of people hearing about sorry i'm tired of people arguing about you know what's the best way to do this on the internet but you know blah 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 blah. he said i just want to see what see the work you're doing and see the results and i'll judge for myself and he is tremendous if you ask him why he's doing what he's doing he'll tell you but otherwise
0: he's just going to keep telling you what he's doing and the results it's generating all right great stuff um so your personal network of coaches is pretty strong Uh, a great example of this being the thinker james smith uh how did you get into that relationship with james initially I bugged him online. (laughs) I bugged him online.
1: Um, Are you ready for this? This is a meandering story. So when I was still working at the Derngate, I wrote an article about treadmill pushing as as a a substitution for the Prowler.
0: Yeah, I remember that, actually. Yeah.
1: Okay, so based off that, Muscle and Fitness read that article on Elite FTS and contacted me to do an interview and do an article in Muscle and Fitness. Oh, nice. So the, the editor of that uh, publication that I spoke to, I had some questions for him on Exos, Soviet preparation, blah, 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 blah. And he said, well, I don't know about that, but I, I work with a guy who does. And that was the angry coach at Elite FTS, Bob Eilenfeld, who's since then, he and I conversed back and forth for a long time, and um, I ended up coming to the States for the, the Central Virginia seminar. We became friends, and at the same time, the owner of Wasps, the, the message comes down to the academy. I'm looking for someone to train my son for, uh, for six months in the USA. Do you know any coaches? And I said, I know a great coach He works on muscle and fitness. He's the angry coach. <laughs> He he said, "No, nah, not for me. I'm gonna send him to James." So James ended up flying over to the UK to live in Steve Hayes's farmhouse and train his son every single day. Wow! So indirectly, I've done him a favour by by putting that money in his pocket, getting that job. So I just said, "James, you know, I'm 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 working at this club that you're you're linked to now. Can I come out and visit you?" And he said, "Yeah, sure." So went out, spent spent the afternoon with him bugged him with a bunch of questions and you know we've, we've been in um, correspondence ever since
0: awesome and that really shows the value of getting yourself out there uh and making yourself useful to other people
1: yeah you know i mean at the time i was like i'm still a nobody i was an extra nobody then and you know now i'm able to have a little bit of like uh, Influence to help people, you know, buy his books, attend his seminars, all that kind of stuff, which, you know, it's to do that because he is, he has absolutely been one of the most influential people in my, my, the development of my thinking as a coach. Check him out.
0: <laughs> I think actually the, the first ever serious strength conditioning program I ever did was the uh, 531 for football that he wrote with Jim Wendler, the ebook. Island felt, yeah, yeah. That's got to be at least eight years old now, right?
1: Oh, it's over 10. Over 10. I mean, it was it was a thing when I started in professional rugby, and I've been I've been a coach for almost ten years.
0: Right, and for a ten year old book, it is still completely up to date. Yeah, uh, I still to this day use that as my recommendation for strength and conditioning to uh, the University of Surrey American football team. Okay, let's talk social media. So I know you're on Instagram. We're just chatting off air about some of the content you put out. How important is social media for coaches? Double edged sword. Double edged sword. You know, I've like, I've, I've
1: done enough on that that it's opened up avenues to me like um brent brent calloway who's the the i think he's a director of performance for exos now he was the international director discovered me through my website when i was an intern and are you interested in working in a professional rugby league in america and i was like hell yeah so he knows about me because of that i've had people um you know, op- open up opportunities to me that didn't exist. If, if, if it wasn't for that, I have people that know me. I went to a club in France and there were two guys that knew me. So, you know, I got to have lunch with their coaches because I wasn't a stranger as much. And that, that's good. But then the flip side is, is that invariably, if, if you are going to have an opinion, you're going to speak your mind and you're going to have certain characteristics and, and certain uh, thoughts that are unpalatable to people. So I hold unequivocally, you will never work at Arsenal Football Club because you're too extreme in your views and you don't like the Olympic lifts. And I was like, "But you've heard of me," and I still got to go there and present. So it is what it is. If you're willing to get rough with the smooth, so be it. If if you you know, I think mean, it's Socrates. It's like the easiest way to avoid criticism: be nothing, do nothing, say nothing. So yeah,
0: I mean. It gets me into hot water, but it got me this far. Do you think it can give coaches a chance to show their value?
1: It can do. It's useful in America, I found, with, with the athletes because things are so busy that they will they will often take a lot away from the information that you share online and come up with follow-up questions in the session or you'll open their eyes to a certain idea or, or plant a seed. And that's one thing that I I found useful and interesting with with the athletes is because obviously, you know, when when you're on the floor, things are just go, go, go.
0: Okay, so you've had the Rugby Strength Coach website for a good few years now. Uh, And it seems that if you want to get your philosophies out and get noticed, you need a website and blog. Uh, And also, if you do this well, it can serve as a multiple income stream. How important is that?
1: Massively, massively. It's like... You read, ever read uh, Nassim Taleb? I have recently. Okay, so let's, let's put it this way. First of all, he says employment is paid slavery, which it is, because if I pay you enough to keep you quiet, I can demand you work on you know ridiculous hours, and if you have no other money coming in, it's the threat of me taking that away from you that keeps you on your knees, right? So he calls it the "fu" money. I, I won't say the proper word because I'm in style. Because of the SU money. It's like when you have enough money to walk away, they have no power over you. Or less cynically, when you have enough money to walk away, you give yourself the time and space and freedom to make decisions with a clear head and not make them because you have to. You can take jobs because you love them or you can wait and not panic which I've been fortunate enough to be in that position. Now I still had to keep working to get the money coming in. So I didn't have the the true FU money, which is you just, you know, you have the nest egg and that's it. That's, that's one reason. Plus let's say you have a hundred subscribers or a hundred online clients and you get fired by one of them or 10% of them. You know, it's not, it's not perfect, but you still got 90 left. If you have one employer and you get fired, guess what? You got no money coming in. So, if, if, if only for that, I think he calls it the barbell strategy, if only for that, you must have other money coming in. And you know, the, the, the second aspect of it is is I found, let's say you're, you're in a contract negotiation. Let's say they offer you 60 and you want 65 and you, you beat them over the head in negotiation to get 65. How hard are they going to make you work for that extra five and never let you forget? About it? How easy is it to earn five grand? on a side business easy a couple of hours a week so it's like you for for security and for you know looking after yourself having freedom and then also just learning a lot of the transferable aspects of business to coaching persuasion you know allocation of resources all that kind of stuff is is I found it very very useful and I will never not work for myself never
0: all right. Great stuff there. And I think for me as well, that really highlights the importance of, you know, giving other people value. As I think the more value that you can give out, the more likelihood there is that when you do come to sell something, people will be willing to buy that.
1: Helps to be controversial every now and then as
0: well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to get back to talking a bit more about your career. Yeah. Uh, so S&C can be a bit of an unstable career at times. Uh, and When shit hits the fan at clubs, the strength conditioning coach is often the first one out the door. Uh, mm-hmm. How have you dealt with any setbacks or is there anything from your career that you would actually take back if you could? I, I tend not to look backwards. Like, I mean,
1: I, I will make mistakes and learn from them, but I wouldn't take it back. I wouldn't take it back because there's, there's still positives that you can take from every, every opportunity. And uh, we were actually at a high performance meeting at school the other day and uh, our sports psych stood up and said, resiliency, you don't learn in a book. You learn resiliency through hard times. And that's what we're trying to get across to our athletes right now. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've had hard times and I've, I've made mistakes in my career, but it's got me this far and it's, you can still take value from it for, for the future. Um, it's just, you know, never too high, never too low. <laughs> because I mean, I, I'm a lot better now at this stage in my career. The, the lows, I, I can take a little bit better. You know when I was in my 20s, I, I didn't take it well, but it was, it was that it, it's kind of like a, a vicious circle. Well, not a vicious circle, it's like that passion and how important it was to me got me that far. But then the downside to that is, is like when you have the lows, it's tough, it's tough.
0: And I guess a good example of the ups and downs then in your career is your success with Argentina, finishing fourth in the World Cup, coupled with what you've previously noted was, was not the greatest time for you in Australia. Yeah. How did those roles come about and what was that time like? So, I mean, I had a, I had a previous relationship
1: with uh, some, some tutors from Exos and he and I were brawling asking, he was asking me questions when he was doing the job, you know, how would you do this? How would you do this? How would you do this? And just by pure luck, I ended up covering him for three months. And I, I, I did that job for three months to cover him. And I'd, I'd previously visited the Roosters to introduce myself, and they'd they'd seen a lecture of mine that I'd done online, hint hint, and that got through the door. So I did a professional visit there, and they seemed very. I'd, I'd asked about jobs at the end of the year, extremely uninterested. Did the three months with Argentina, and then suddenly they called me, which is weird. <laughs> so I left Argentina to do that job, and within six months, I was like, not nah, not doing this anymore, not getting better, not learning, not enjoying it you know, it, it, zero out of three is not good. I mean, if you get one or two, you're doing okay. But I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not getting value out of any aspect of this other than the money. So I, I quit. And then the, the next day I spoke to Exos, expecting to be sent to China, which is basically what they do if, if they need you but you're not important to them, they send you to China. So I was getting ready to go to, to China and they said, oh, actually, your replacement for Argentina has just dropped out, so you can be your own replacement,
0: but you have to stay until the end of the World Cup, which is what I did. Yeah, and and that goes to show the value and the importance of taking control of your own career and turning negatives around.
1: Like, I could still be in Sydney and be miserable, but because I, you know, jumped off the cliff, I
0: got to enjoy that opportunity, and that took me to Japan, which took me here. All right, great stuff. Uh, And I presume you'd had some incredible experiences over in Japan. Is what they're doing in terms of S&C much different from what we do in the Western world?
1: Yes, very, yeah. It's... um, I'm trying to think how to be charitable.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, Japanese culture is, is a slave to tradition and respect of what has come before to a fault. And if you look at all of the teams that excel um, in the Japanese league, they are 2 a man foreign head coaches. I'll say that.
0: So is that success because that coach has been able to come in and, and make changes to the philosophies?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, even if you look at the, um, the, the the Japanese national team, it's a it's a foreign head coach with either dual nas- dual nationality or foreign players that make up the leadership of the team. And that's because if you look at Japanese culture, this is obviously a, a broad brush. There are there are, there are individuals within that culture that change, but if you look at East Asian cultures, they tend to be collectivist in nature. Which is what what do you have to do for the good of the group? Whereas if you're in the West, especially America, it's an individualist culture, which is, what do I do for me? And because of that culture in the East, it is tradition, respect, read the rule book, don't, don't speak up, don't uh, go outside the lines, do it this way, do as you're told. Which is great if you're making phones, TVs, cars, all that stuff. Think of all the Japanese technology, right? What happens if you happen to be creative and take risks or stand up professional sport that's that's why there's there's a a real issue between uh the the values which actually make for elite sportsmen and east asian culture in my opinion
0: <laughs> all right so a really interesting insight there into uh the asian s system yes all right, so a little conscious of time, but want to grab your opinion on a few things. I think you're going to enjoy the first one. Uh do SNC coaches have to be able to coach Olympic lifts? Absolutely not. Next. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> what are you using instead of the Olympic lifts?
1: Yeah, any kind of exercise which which shares the the characteristics
0: which make the Olympic lifts useful,
1: which is triple extension under load, moderate load, moderate velocity, no inherent deceleration. So you, and, you know, basically anything where you're, you're projecting a load and you're, you're using triple extension. So, you know, jumps, um, heavy medicine ball throws, any kind of ballistic exercise with bands, um, you know, just use, use your intelligence, use your judgment. But, yeah, many, many roads lead to Rome. Like, I've, I've worked with enough athletes now that I've come from. I'll just give you an example right now. Um, Stefan Jacob was at Richmond. I'm, I'm helping him prepare for his NFL Pro Day right now. Was doing cleans, you know, till the cows came home. We haven't done a clean in the two months that I've been training him, and his vertical's gone up three and a half inches.
0: So, yeah, <laughs> apparently many roads lead to Rome, or he's a freak. And I guess you've only got to look at coaches such as like Jay DeFranco, who has produced some phenomenal results in the uh, NFL combine without ever programming Olympic lifts.
1: Yeah, like this is, this is what I'm talking about with, with the UKCA and, and strength conditioning in general. It's like what people are told. And the reality is, like, you could pump out endless amount of athletes that, that increase their vert or increase this or increase that to be told by a recent graduate student finishing, oh, that shouldn't work. Well, it does.
0: Okay, so next one, how important is it for S&C coaches to be doing research, uh, even if that's not published research, but just being involved in research projects?
1: uh it it depends it depends like i think there's you're gonna have some some constraints on your time in certain environments that make it not possible i think if you have the time and you have the interest and the ability to do so yes otherwise you you may have to rely on others to do that it's it's like a i'd say it's nice but not essential
0: All right, great stuff. Uh, So finally, I just wanna talk to you about some of the upcoming trends in strength conditioning. I heard you speak on a a podcast the other day about optical training, uh, and I was at a conference recently where that was a hot topic. Can you give us a bit of an overview of how you're using it and why?
1: I mean, we're we're still dipping a toe. Like, we're uh, we're, we're bringing somebody in this summer to work with the team, but in, in terms of the importance, if you read up on the OODA loop by uh, Colonel John Boyd, who was in the U.S. Air Force, um, in any kind of competitive situation, uh, combat, uh, sports business, the the winner is typically the person who is able to observe their environment, orientate themselves, decide and act. So to to observe is to derive information from the environment via the senses. To To orient is to process that information, to derive meaning to analyze what is going on, to synthesize a, a, a possible response from all of the different options you have, then you decide, then you act. So look at the worst forms of agility training in strength conditioning. We miss three quarters of it and we just tell people to do tap dancing through a ladder, which doesn't even respect the biomechanics of displacement or, or lateral movement. So when, when you talk about true agility or true... Uh, Decision-making ma- decision within sport, uh, incomplete or incorrect information derived via the senses leads to the athletes creating an incorrect model of reality in their brains, which affects everything that comes thereafter. So that the more uh, accurately and the more quickly you're able to uh, derive information via the senses, namely the eyes, the better the everything thereafter is going to be. And that, that's perceptual training. When you talk about orientation, you're, you're basically talking about uh, building a database of experience in the sport, the ability to detect patterns, the ability to be put in different situations and come up with a creative response to them. And then you talk about decision, which is basically a trial and error and, and education and discourse and all that kind of stuff. And then you talk about action. So at best, most, most programs train 25 to 50 percent of what's going on when
0: we need a complete approach to to optimize performance. That's a great summary. Are you training each of those three aspects individually or are they all done as part of the same drills or or techniques?
1: I think there's going to be, there's going to be a, a small thread of everything throughout what we do, but there's going to be changes in emphasis for sure. Um, but I, you know, I think the thing about the perceptual stuff is, is that it's it's low fatigue enough that it can be put anywhere, and that's our intention is to just put it in when we get the chance. But then, look at how we're uh, how we're progressing that. But I'll give you an example of of just how powerful that can be. There was uh, a guy at the Houston's that my my colleague Eric worked with. This guy was the first round draft pick as a receiver. I think it's Will mm-hmm. Will someone, maybe Will Hurd. So anyway, this guy's a first round draft pick. And on his draft notes, is like constant, you know, case of the drops. Like supreme athlete constantly drops the ball. So they bring this eye specialist in. They look at him. And if his left eye <laughs> was as bad as his right eye, he legally wouldn't be allowed to drive his car. It was that bad. So what, what do they do? Didn't do any ladder drills. Didn't do any kind of movement training. Didn't do any kind of drills. Not, none of this stuff. They just trained that, that right eye. And now he's got, I think he's got the most number of yards per, per reception in the NFL. So when, if you have your strength and conditioning hat on and you take that approach of, oh, he needs to do more, more of this exercise, more of that exercise, you've still got a guy that drops the ball. If you have your high performance hat on, then you have a, a viable solution to a problem.
0: So, uh, and at the conference I was at, they was talking a lot about these kind of light flash glasses. Straight. Right. Yeah. Uh, are you using those? We, we have a set of strobes. So basically,
1: you're, you, have, you have these glasses that strobe on and off, like they, they turn opaque and then they turn clear. So by strobing, you're kind of like starving the brain of, of information. So it has to work harder to detect patterns and kind of predict where, where objects are going to move to. And then obviously, once you, once you uh, take away that strobing, the, the brain is hopefully able to process information faster.
0: All right, great stuff. Um, Velocity-based training and push bands, do you see any value in those?
1: Um, I think push band is good for encouraging competition and nothing else. I think if you look at the PhD research being done by Mladen Jovanovic, he basically shows that the, the noise greatly outweighs the signal with that. And it makes sense because you're deriving velocity from acceleration. So you're not measuring it directly. Whereas with tools like Jimmaware and Tendo, you're measuring displacement directly. So you're able to, uh, to calculate uh, velocity a lot more accurately. Um, I think VBT, if you're a competent coach and you've been coaching a long time, it will, it will tell you more or less what you already know. It's just a useful guide and it has decent applications for monitoring and it has decent applications for auto-regulation of volume and, um, you know, set volume and also exercise volume, which I've, I've experienced uh, a good amount of success with that, like with uh, Stefan again. We we recently, when when we wanted to concentrate on uh, the power development block we're in, he, you know, for example, trap bar jump, hang snatch, um, close grip, not full Olympic lifts, uh, barbell jump squat, all that kind of stuff. We would... We would put the gym aware on him and say, right, you're gonna give me uh reps until you drop off zero point zero five meters per second. And we're gonna we're gonna continue with uh sets until you can't get within zero point zero five of your best in the first two reps. So that's that's a protocol that I stole from Max Schmarzo. And you know, as I said, he's had a you know, three and a half feet, uh, inch increase in his in his vert, he's taken two tenths of his twenty. His uh his lower body power has is, is increased by about 16%. So it, I'm sure there are, there are multiple reasons why what we're doing is working. That's one piece of what we have done and those are the results.
0: Yeah, and I think for me, the value is with the auto-regulation. So I find auto-regulation is only really as good as the athlete's subjective opinion, whereas giving an objective measure kind of greatly enhances the use of the auto-regulation technique.
1: Yeah, I mean, sub- subjective subjective judgment. Like Hank Reinov talks about, we have people that can't tell the difference between a, a migraine and a brain tumor. So you're going to tell me you know exactly what the speed is in the bar?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, final thing. You spoke a bit about occlusion training before, uh, and it was in one of your Instagram videos the other day. Is that something you're using more frequently? Yeah, yeah, we
1: we tend to use it more for uh, return to play, for like post-op or uh, post-injury, just because it's you know you got athletes that are load compromised, you, you want to get back muscle girths so or that kind of stuff. So, it's it's fiddly enough that you can only do it with small numbers. Uh, if you try that in a, a football session with 40 guys, it's just you know, it's like trying to herd cats. So it's limited to uh, RTP situations for us. But you know, I've got you know really good data from the guys that I use it with at Richmond and. Um, you know, I think the evidence is fairly conclusive now that it works and it's it's a useful string to the bow.
0: And are you using those isotonically or isometrically? No, so we uh, the protocol we're using
1: is 60 seconds on, 60 seconds off for three sets, followed by a minute of lactate pooling
0: at the end. Awesome. And what sort of results are you getting from that?
1: I mean, the, the guy in the video that you're alluding to has just started using it, but we had a guy at Richmond that put almost two
0: inches on his quads in uh, a couple of months. Which is pretty big, yeah. <laughs> All right, sounds like I need to get on the uh, occlusion training ready for summer. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would say this. It was, he was gained back what had been lost. And,
1: you know, it's not to say that you can't gain back uh, muscle growth without it. Like, we had a guy in, in Japan that tore his ACL, and before he went in for the surgery, he'd gained an inch. You know, we had him doing, you know, what he could do go as hard as you can as early as you can as often as you can he was doing sled drags he was doing you know quarter squats on, on his on his bad leg from from uh, from a step he was doing all kinds of stuff and he also did um you know heavy spin bike with complex but it's, it's just what are the useful tools available to you to to bypass the central nervous system to reduce load on the joint all that kind of stuff
0: all right dude so let's close this out before my uh, voice completely goes uh, so what's next for you? I know you've talked a lot about getting into NFL potentially. Is that still the plan? I
1: hope so, but you know, I think the way we're going to do that is by uh, going 12-0 with William & Mary.
0: So I'm going to concentrate on that. All right. Uh, what projects have you got coming up? Anything we should be uh, looking out for from you? Well, I mean, um, we're really trying to grow uh,
1: Strength Coach Network at the moment. Um, so you can just go on strengthcoachnetwork.com Tons of lectures, like we just added every single uh, Central Virginia Sports Performance seminar on there, which is I think it's close to 200 hours. We have 50-ish month monthly lectures from just like ridiculously good level speakers. Um, we have a we have a career development section for all the stuff you talked about. We have a business section for guys that want to try and earn money outside of coaching. Like it's it's basically. All the, all the criticism that I've doled out in, in the past hour, it's my, that is my response to that because it's, it's not enough to complain about it. It's like, well, what are you going to do about it?
0: So that's, that's my attempt to, to solve that problem. Oh, that sounds absolutely incredible. Uh, Kia, where else can people uh, find you? Um, you can search uh, rugby Strength
1: rugbystrengthcoach on any of the platforms. Um, you can go to strengthcoachnetwork.com. You can email me, uh, Kia, at strengthcoachnetwork.com. And uh, one thing I forgot to mention is I'm probably going to be in the UK in May, Um, so I'm I'm sure there's going to be some
0: seminar dates that will come up at some point. So just keep an eye out for that. Uh, Awesome, I will uh, keep an eye out for that. Cool. All right, well, Kia. Thank you for your uh, time today, dude. Good luck with the rest of the year, and we will speak again soon. Indeed, mate. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, I would be incredibly grateful if you was to subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about it, or even better, leave us a review so we can see exactly how we're getting on. On the next show, I'll be speaking to Dan John about his book, Now What? and talking general training advice. Guys, thanks for listening. Have a great week and I'll speak to you next time.